0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have
1: about him. We will be in John chapter 4 today, so just follow along with me as I read. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour, that, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did We had come from Judea to Galilee.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. I am glad to see you. Go ahead, if you haven't yet, turn to John chapter 4. Like Carter read for us, that's where we're going to be at today. And so we're continuing our series through our study through the gospel of John. And so I want to start by, by reminding us of this, that John is narrative. So it's a written story uh, documenting Jesus and his interactions with other people. It's a narrative story, right? In the Bible, it's full of different kinds of genres, right? There's wisdom literature, there's poetry, there's apocalyptic literature, there's epistle. In each one of those genres, uh, all the different many kinds of books of the Bible demand a certain kind of interpretation, a, certain, a different way of interpretation, when you come to a narrative or reading story, and the most, basic, the most basic two questions to ask yourself as you're reading through story, narrative, especially in the Gospels, you can do it in any narrative in the Old Testament, but especially when you come to the Gospels, written story about Jesus, two questions you ask is first, what does this tell me about Jesus? Uh, who is the image of God? Who is the very representative of God? I look no further than Jesus to know who God is. So who is Jesus? That's one thing we ask as we read narrative. And the second thing we ask is, what does this tell me about me? Uh, So Jesus is colliding with other characters and persons in this documented story, and it tells us about how he is, how he works, what are his ways, what's common, how does Jesus feel, how does God feel, what's his motivations, what's he up to, what's he concerned about, all those things Jesus shows us. But as he collides with us, or people in the story, it shows us how fickle we are, how anxious we are, how quick to disbelieve we are, what's in the way of us really uh, uniting ourselves to Jesus in deep and profound ways. So asking yourself those two very basic questions will open up a whole world of helpful insight and application for you. So that's what we see happening today. Jesus is encountering a lot of people in his home country and in his culture and community. He's encountering this one man specifically. It shows us how God deals with us typically, but also really more emphatically today, it shows us a lot about ourselves. So today I hope my prayer is that we all have some real real clear self-understanding after we come out of the story about how we are and how we operate. And specifically, what John, as this author who's documenting this interaction, wants us to see is what kind of faith we have. Jesus is provoking and shining a light on the condition of our faith. Today is all about faith. We're going to learn about faith, and faith is a dense subject. There's tons of, tons of scriptures we could go to to talk about faith, but so we're, we're re- really zeroing in on what John wants us to see about faith, and there's three things about faith that we are supposed to see in this passage. First, a fraudulent faith. There is such a thing as a faith that is superficial or that is shallow. That's not the real thing. Fraudulent faith, that's what first can be exposed. Secondly, authentic faith. There is though a real kind of faith, a genuine kind of faith. So what is that? What's the nature and characteristic of real faith? And then thirdly, we have a power for faith, empowered faith, a reason to have faith that we're going to see also today, okay? So those are our three Movement through today, through this story, a fraudulent faith and authentic faith and an empowered faith. So, hope we learn a lot today. Before we do, let's go ahead and pray. And ask God to teach us and be with us right now, Father. We are gathered here for Your glory, that You might be separate above every other name in this world and in our life. And so, God, that's what we ask right now: that You would use Your truth, the revelation of Your Son in time and history through human interaction, to cause Your Your name, who you are to be better than every other thing in our life. That you remind us here once again, God, of how great, wonderful, delightful you are, how worth it you are. So God, meet with us here today. Let your truth hit us where you need it to hit us. Convict us, lead us, change us. God, do whatever it takes today to make us more like Jesus. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. All right, so let's first look at a fraudulent faith. So we come to a point here now, uh, in the Gospel of John, that really is a pivot in a new direction. So before it's kind of been one unit, and now we're entering into a new unit in the Gospel of John. It's heading us into a new direction. So you remember, rewind, at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus, it says, is going into Galilee. Jesus is making his way. That's his people. That's his community. That's his culture. He's going to Galilee but first. Do you remember what happens in John chapter 4? He stops and intentionally redirects and goes through Samaria. And remind you, Samaria is enemy territory. These two cultures and people groups had hostility and resentment towards one another, but that's where Jesus decides to go through to preach the gospel. And surprisingly, in enemy territory, where you least expect it, revival takes place. This woman he meets at the well, goes back to her village. The whole village comes and meets Jesus, and it says, "'You are the Savior of the world.'" That's what they proclaim about Jesus. So this revival breaks out there in Samaria, and now Jesus is continuing on his original journey to Galilee, back to his people, his culture, and his community. So let's see what happens in verses 43 and 44. After two days, he departed for Galilee. It says, for Jesus himself had testified, this is a common saying in Jesus' ministry apparently, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So that statement John writes for us, almost so we, we have this Preface to the story. He wants to give us a framework to understand this next interaction that happens and everything that happens from here on out up through chapter 12. Apparently, what we should expect is that Jesus is gonna be rejected by his own people, by his own culture, by his own community. The people that you would least expect it to happen with happens. They reject him. And that's of course that's juxtaposed all right, against what just happened previously? Samaritans, the enemies, they're the ones who flock to him and are saved and reconciled, but his own people reject him. A prophet is not even, has no honor even in his own hometown. So why is Jesus reject, expecting this though? Why is Jesus expecting this kind of rejection? Well, we see this right away in verses 45 to 48. It says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Oh man, they welcomed him. That sounds positive, right?" Let's keep reading and find out if this welcome is, is a genuine welcome, the right kind of welcome, or sh- if we should be skeptical of it. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So here's what's happening. All of these these folks who know Jesus have heard of Jesus. They've witnessed his miracles. They've witnessed these spectacular things that have happened. They flock to him to welcome him. Why? Apparently what we're supposed to see is they're really excited about the entertainment value. They're, they're excited about the potential spectacle that might take place now that Jesus is back in their, in their town. Jesus is now coming back into their territory, Everyone heard about the water turned to wine. So they want to see what Jesus is going to do next. Let's keep on reading. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Look what Jesus says, though, to this, to this man. He says, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the you there, he says, unless you, that you is Plural. So Jesus is not talking directly, even directly to this one singular man as much as this whole entire community of people who who are around him at this time. He's saying, unless you all get the signs and wonders that you want, you're not going to be interested. You're not going to follow me. Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Jesus knows really what their heart uh, is invested in. They want the benefits. They want the entertainment value. They want uh, the phenomenon but they don't want him, really. They're not really interested in Jesus. They're interested in the benefits that come along with him. Now this happens, remember I said, this, this uh, prophet has no honor in his hometown. It's this line that John writes to give us eyes to interpret the rest of the forthcoming chapters. And so multiple times this happens throughout the next co- couple of chapters. In chapter six, it says, a large, cro- a large crowd was following him, Jesus, because they saw, this, the, uh, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Later on in chapter six, Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves when Jesus uh, multiplied the bread." Later on in twelve, after right the triumphal entry, remember the triumphal entry? Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. All the, I mean, these multitudes of people gather the streets and shouting, "Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest!" It's this, it's this um, ecstatic event that's happening. But Jesus tells us, or it's documented, the reason why the crowd went to him at that triumphal entry was that they heard he had done, the sign, uh, we, the, he had done this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. That's, a Jesus, that's what's documented for us. So over and over we see, we're reminded, that the crowds are not really interested in Jesus himself as much as they are interested in what he's doing and the benefits and the, the entertainment value. And so the story unfolds. And here's what's here's what strangely going to happen. These crowds that are so uh, excited about what Jesus is doing and these miracles and these signs, it begins as interest, it begins as, as like frenzied uh, uh, crowds that can't help but gather around Jesus, and it moves throughout the Gospel of John, these next several chapters, from that to hostility, rejection, and hatred, till eventually they kill him. They start at excitement and end at murder, so I'm just going to throw out the kitchen sink here. All these track uh, these events throughout the Gospel of John. I'm just going to read them to you. Listen to me. It says this in chapter six: The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Chapter 7, not even his brothers believed in him. Again, in chapter 7, there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's just a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Again, in chapter 7, there was division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. In chapter 8, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, went out to the temple. Chapter 10, there's division among the Jews because of the words of Jesus. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Again in chapter 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Chapter 11, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them, listen here, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We're supposed to see this change uh, in rejection, the nature of it and the intensity of it. At first, it's rejecting Jesus because he's misunderstood, because he's no longer getting behind their agenda, because he's no longer benefiting them with that entertainment value, and it moves along eventually to absolute rejection, hostility, and murder. Now, why does that happen, That, that, that sequence of events? Why does it happen like that? And I'll tell you, it's not, they're not special. We're all like this. And that's the point. This is a, a call for self-examination for each and every one of us here. Because when Jesus, here, here's why this, this, inten- this intensification factor happens. When Jesus stops benefiting us, we will hate him. We will turn cruel towards him. We will t- turn cold towards him. Uh, when he no longer is keeping up his end of the deal, we no longer are interested in him, and so we'll turn heartless towards him. So here's what we think often. Here's our line of thinking. Maybe you haven't thought of this, but if you examine your life, it might be true. God, I'm, I'm keeping up my moral duties. I go to church. I serve. I'm being holy. I'm doing all the right things, and yet, God, you're not keeping up your end of the deal. I'm still single, or I'm still suffering, or I don't have the job that I love. God, where are you? I'm keeping up my end of the deal. Where are you at right now, God? What this shows, okay, is that we treat our relationship with God like a cost-benefit relationship. You know what a cost-benefit analysis is? As far as I know, (laughs) uh, people who are investing in a company or a business, they will run a cost-benefit analysis where they'll see if it's worth that that investment on the front based on the, the foreseen benefit on the back end. And that's how we handle our relationship with God often. God, I'll invest, I'll commit, I'll go along as long as there's benefit in the long run, as long as at the end of the day, at the end of the events, God, as long as you keep up your end of the deal. And so when God disappoints us, when God lets us down, we let him have it. We've invested so much, and done so much, and where is he now? This, friends, is not real faith. This is a superficial kind of faith. This is a fraudulent faith. It's not the real thing. So let me ask you a question here. Do you know what to look for in your life, what to examine in your own life to discover whether or not this is your kind of faith, this problematic, fraudulent faith? Here's what you have to look for. Is your excitement about Jesus based on circumstance? Is, your, is, your, is Jesus' relevance in your life only ever based on circumstance. So like when things are going great, when you're getting what you want, are you excited about Jesus? But when life is mundane, boring, and fine, or when it's going poorly, you're no longer interested? Or when it's going poorly and badly, oh, I need Jesus, I'm desperate for Jesus, show up, Jesus, help me, God. But when things are great, he's nowhere to be found. He's not interesting to you anymore. He's no longer there because you don't need him. See, we're, we're usually doing one of the three. We're usually, you know, with Jesus when things are going good, or with Jesus when things are going bad, but never when it's just okay, when it's boring, and finally forget about Him and not, you know. So we're only doing ever one of the three typically. I don't know about you guys, but I want my excitement for Jesus to be determined by Him and not my circumstances. I want to walk through life with all its highs and all its lows and how mundane it can be at times and feel the same way about Jesus at all times. Because what that would show is my passion and love and excitement for Jesus is all about Him, not favors, not benefits, not cost-benefit analysis relationship. I want to, in other words, I want to love God. I want to worship God. I want to draw near to God for the sake of God and God alone, for the sake of him and him him himself. I simply want to enjoy God, no strings attached, no strings attached. Now, that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the good things. It doesn't mean I don't have disappointment when bad things occur. It just means that enjoyments and disappointments, they're in measure. They're in measure. They don't consume me. They don't have their way with me. They're in measure. And what... What happens when we have those things in measure is they actually serve us. We can actually, they become our servants. They, we can use them to point us back to Jesus, how good he is and how much we need him without being over, overly consumed by them. So I don't know about you guys, but I want to follow Jesus for the sake of him and him alone, not strings attached, not favors, not benefits, not possible upside. So the question is, how do we get that? Like how do we get that kind of love for Jesus and that love for God that has nothing to do with the upside and the benefit, just Him and Him alone? And I feel silly talking about it because it's not rock and science, and this isn't profound. This really isn't profound. It's very basic, but I have found that the most mature—I haven't said this in a while. I've said it before. I haven't said in a while. The most mature Christians who have a vibrant, strong, resilient, and real relationship with God, just simply do the basics well. There's no tricks. There's no, you know, hidden mystery. They just do the basics well and master the basics. And so how do we get a love for God that's just for him and him alone, not benefits? The only way to enjoy God and love him for the sake of him is to deeply, this (laughs) is to deeply accept that the things I want are not essential to my happiness. Does that make sense? The things I want, those benefits, that upside, these things that Jesus could bring me. Um, using Jesus as a means to end, really about the end, those things are not essential to our happiness. This might be the most sobering and, and most maybe controversial thing I say this entire sermon, but it, and I, it is not possible to be fulfilled in this life, okay? Like, it's not possible for you to get every single thing you want and be fulfilled. If that were to even take place, if somehow you just got everything of your heart's desire, you would still not be fulfilled. Because our world is broken and fragmented by injustice, our world is broken and fragmented by sin, you are broken and fragmented by sin, life is unfair, it's not in our control, there will be disappointments, cancer, sickness, struggle, it's all real, and so it just is not possible to be fulfilled in this life. That's a really, that's a false standard of, of things, to be fulfilled because it's not promised, it's not guaranteed, it's, it's in, our, in our hands one day and out of the hand, our hands the next. But what is achievable, what is possible, is contentment. So what you want is not essential to your happiness, only Jesus is, and when you begin to believe that and bring that into the center of your life and live like that, then you are actually content, and then you are actually happy. Love God for the sake of Him and Him alone. Enjoy Him. No strings attached. And you convince yourself of that by recognizing that you will never be fulfilled by what you want. Even if you got everything you want, you still wouldn't be happy. It's not possible in this life. So then, okay, I must be hyper-aware, hyper, hyper hyper-aware of whether good circumstances are informing my trust in God, my excitement about God, more than just who He is. Because if that's the case, then my worship of God, it's dependent upon what he's doing for me, and that's not authentic faith. So I want to be content in God for the sake of who he is. And when the good comes, let it have its place. When the bad comes, mourn it appropriately and shake it off. And at the end of the day, give me Jesus. And if you don't figure this out, if we don't figure this out, you'll be disoriented all of your life. I'm telling you, you will, you will swing from one extreme to the other and to the next, and, to the other, and you will experience this complete disorientation all of your life, destroying yourself and destroying other people. When things are going great, good, it's going great. When things are bad, it's awful. When things are mundane and boring, you know, we don't, we don't want to live like that. We want to be as passionate and excited and in on Jesus, no matter what the circumstances are. So I want a a true relationship with Jesus, not a cost-benefit analysis relationship with Jesus. And so here's what John's gonna do. He's gonna teach us then what real faith is, what real trust is, what real investment in Jesus looks like by now showing us a contrast. So here's the hometown, right? The community and the culture who's gonna reject Jesus because he's not going to get behind their agenda. He's not gonna be a spectacle for them. But now we meet this one man, He's going to show us what real faith, authentic faith looks like. So let's go back to the story in verse 46. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official, okay, a leader whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come down from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus says, I'm not going to be a spectacle. Essentially, Jesus is saying, no, I'm not interested. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to do it. But the official, this man, he persists. Look what he says in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. This man is obviously desperate. And who wouldn't be, I'd do anything for my kids if they were in this situation. So this is his only option. He's desperate. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, "Go, Your son will live." Now we read literature, we read the story and we're invited to, to think about it, to imagine, you know what that would be like in flesh and blood experience. And if you're this man who hears Jesus all of a sudden here, hours from your house, like a journey from your fa- house, a far journey from your house, say, "Go ahead." go, your son is healed. You would wonder, like, is that it? What if Jesus made a mistake? What what if he's lying? What if he's made an error? Because for this man to accept that word and begin to go back to his house is, there's no redos here. There's no try agains here. This, like, this is it. And so his options right now are, he can ask Jesus, are you sure it worked? Uh, do you need to say it again? (laughs) Do you need to speak it again? Or to not believe Jesus, to think this is just ridiculous that he would just say that and it happens and go seek an alternative desperately. Or the third thing he can do is he can take up Jesus on his word. He can believe Jesus and head home. And so John records what happens in verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. So he decides to turn away from Jesus and begin the long walk back home. He believes Jesus' word. Now, we shouldn't speculate too much, though, either, when it come to story. We shouldn't imagine too much and start, start inserting things that really aren't in the text. But I think we do have textual warrant to think and discern that this man likely uh, feels the risk factor here. This man likely feels maybe a little fear, a little doubt because here in verse 50, it says that he believed Jesus at his word, but later on in verse 53, which we'll get to in a little bit, in verse 53, when he realizes that the miracle actually has taken place, that it it happened, it came true, it says that he and his household believed. It uses the same words twice. He believed Jesus once, and then he believes him again. So what that shows is that faith can be immature and then mature, that faith can have a level of certainty that isn't full and extensive, and then become more mature the next go around, the next time around. So here's, here's this man who believes Jesus, yes, who turns and heads home, but it likely is a faith in infancy. It likely is a faith in a weaker form, a ch- uh, uh, immature form, that gets strengthened once he sees that it has come to pass. So this man's walking away, likely It's not perfect faith. There's likely some doubt. There's likely some felt like this is a risk I'm taking to go ahead and believe Jesus and begin the long journey home. There's a risk element to this man's faith. To believe Jesus and begin his journey home, it's a step of obedience, even if there might be some doubt. That's what authentic faith is. Real authentic faith, it's this trust act where we take Jesus at his word and obey him on the basis of his word, not our feelings and not our situation. Therefore, real authentic faith, it's going to have a tone or a flavor of defiance. Like you might feel some doubt, you might feel some hesitation, or your situation might not make any sense how it's going to turn out. It might be a huge risk to trust and obey Jesus, and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Nothing's guaranteed, right? But you go forward anyway, and you submit your emotions. You submit your doubt and your hesitations to Jesus's word. You submit your situation and the circumstance and the fear you might have to Jesus's word. So we move forward in faith. Authentic faith moves forward in obedience its confidence is not on the basis of the quality of my faith, how confident I am, how good I feel about this, or how the situation's even playing out. The confidence to trust and obey is Jesus's word, not my faith, not anything else. And so faith, like authentic faith, it doesn't mean it's perfect. It means it defies. It moves forward regardless of how you feel or regardless of what might make sense. Now, how do we apply this to us? What does this mean for you and I? We have to be careful here because I think there is a wrong interpretation here. The wrong interpretation would be that Jesus is going to give me what I want and all I need to do is trust him first. And you have to be careful because, you, you know, you might hear preachers or different statements out there or someone says something like this, you can't achieve God's purpose for your life unless you first trust God or you can't be great unless you're first humble or God'll give you a spouse when you're finally ready to be single as if committing to God and trusting God is this back door to getting what i want and i've done this before <laughs> well, i think we've all done this before and what i've learned over time is it's very we're, we're able to deceive ourselves by thinking, all right, God, I'm going to give this thing up. I'm going to be open-handed about this one thing that I want so badly. I'm going to push it towards you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to trust you and be content in you. But in the back of our minds, deep in the back of our minds, we think to ourselves, curveball, he's going to give me what I want anyway. Just not in the way I saw coming. Not in the way I would have ever conceived for myself. And we treat trusting in Jesus like there's this carrot at the end of the string. There is no carrot at the end of the string there is no carrot. Sometimes God does work things out in a way that lines up with what you want, but that is not the point, and that's not guaranteed. That's not what we hope in when we trust God and obey Him. So then what do we hope in? Why do we move forward in trust and obedience? Where do we draw our confidence from to to take that scary first step? We hope in His promises because that is guaranteed. It's not guaranteed to get what I want. You're not guaranteed to get what you want, but you are guaranteed to get what He has promised to give you. So if you want to live a life marked by authentic faith, like powerful faith, you then need to know the promises of God, because that's what He's guaranteeing to be your safety net. That's what you're going to get. Not what you want necessarily, but what He wants for you in His promises. So What are God's promises? What does he promise for each and every one of us who have called on him? His love. In Christ, he promises his love. Romans 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, in Christ, he promises to provide what we need, like what we need, provide. Not what we want, but what we need. He says in Matthew 6, don't be anxious about anything, saying What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You'll get what you need. What else does God God promise us? What's his promises? Where we draw confidence from to move forward. That he will transform us. Like that he will mature us and refine us. He's not finished with us and done with us. uh, Philippians 1 says... I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And lastly, and probably most, most powerfully, he promises to return. You might never, friends, it's not guaranteed that you get what you want in this life, but you'll get everything one day when he returns. And so you can take a step forward with authentic faith, this defiant kind of faith, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what circumstances are, because God has promised you his love. God has promised you that he's never going to leave you. God's promised that he's going to work in you. God's promised he's going to return and save you. And so that's our safety net. That's where our hope lies. So here's my question for you. Is there anything that God's calling you to do right now that you're hesitating to do? Is there anything that God's calling you to do these days? Maybe it's to take a step forward in ministry. Maybe God's calling some of you to serve Him in a greater way. Maybe it's to start something in your life or stop something in your life, and it's hard to let go or it's hard to initiate. Maybe it's time to confess sin to someone, and you've been holding back. Maybe He's calling you to do that. Maybe it's to pursue greater commitment to God, that you've been been holding out on Him for a long time now, and He's calling you to more, calling you to unite your life more to Him. What's he calling you to do in faith? You make that obedient step because of God's promises, not because everything will necessarily work out, not because necessarily it will be fulfilling for you or even better for you. It might, but that's not guaranteed. What you are guaranteed is his love, that he's gonna work with you, he's never going to leave you, he's gonna provide for what you need and he is gonna ultimately come back and save you. So what's God calling you to do, friends? Your confidence is not in how you feel about it. That's not why you walk forward. Your confidence is not if it makes sense situationally. Your confidence is who is the one speaking the word of promise. Now, some of you here, uh, maybe you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. And maybe you're asking questions and investigating and seeking, but you're not quite there yet. So let me go ahead and talk to you just for a moment as we talk about faith and belief. I think oftentimes when we're holding out and we haven't called on Jesus as our Savior yet, we haven't trusted Him yet and committed to Him, we're waiting for all of our questions to be answered. We're waiting for, for all the stars to align. We're waiting for, for it to make sense for us to say yes and make that great of a commitment. And let me just tell you, if you're waiting for... For just this extensive thing to happen, where all your questions are answered, where everything makes sense, you will wait forever. Because not every question has an answer. There is a lot of mystery when it comes to walking with God. Not everything is explained. We're called to trust. You might not like certain teachings in the Bible. You might have a huge problem with Christians or historic Christianity, and certainly there are valid criticisms (laughs) You might have a lot of hesitations, but the reason why you walk forward and commit to Jesus is not because every one of those things have been solved and every one of those questions have been answered, but who is the one promising you? Who is the one speaking to you and calling you? That's the reason why you move forward. And let me just tell you this. That standard that you place on God to answer every question, to give you absolute certainty, this extensive list of proofs that, yes, this is the right way to go— you don't put that standard on any other decision in your life. You don't. There's always a risk factor or a mystery factor with who you marry, what job you take, where you move, anything you do in life, you can't do with extensive proof that gives you absolute certainty. There's always a risk factor in any decision that we make. So, If you're placing that impossible standard on God to have to prove everything and answer every question that I'm telling you, your problem with God is not logical, it's emotional. Because that logic is not all across life. That's an inconsistent standard that you're placing on God. So the reason why you're holding out from God is not because you don't think he exists or because he can't win an argument. It's because you don't want to surrender. Because you surrender yourself to all other things without that much of an explanation. Yet you place that impossible standard on God. So let me tell you here, friend, who is seeking, do not delay the best decision of your life with an impossible standard that really ultimately is just holding you back from the one who's giving you this word of promise. So walking with God, it requires authentic faith. Obedience on the basis of God's promise despite whatever I feel or whatever circumstances I get in. Now, I know this might terrify you. To walk forward and defy how you feel, submit your emotions to God's promises, to take up God's promise. And move. I know that might just sound extremely risky to you. You might think to yourself, how am I going to sustain this my whole entire life, just living on that credit This all this time? Let me tell you, it does get easier. Faith is like a muscle that we work out and the more we exercise it, the more we use it, the stronger, the more resilient, the more, en- more endurance it has. But when you cease to use it, it atrophies and weakens. And this is actually in this story. If you go to verses 51 through 53, read it with me. It says, "'As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering.'" he asked them the hour which he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So he likely goes from a faith that takes up Jesus at his word to a faith that believes that Jesus is actually the Messiah. But what this shows us is that faith starts weak but it can become strong. Faith starts immature, but it can become mature. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abraham, like the father of faith, it says that his faith was strengthened as he gave glory to God. Faith truly is something that grows and strengthens over time the more that you use it. And so listen, (laughs) The more that you trust God and take Him up on His promises despite how you feel or despite the situation, the more that you do that, with every passing year, it will get easier and easier. And you know what's going to happen? Your life is going to be quite remarkable. There is going to be so, goodness, so many evidences in your rearview mirror of how God has come through and how he has been faithful and how his truth and his promises have held you fast and strengthened you. My goodness, your life will be so rich. God will be so real to you. So I I I want to motivate you. It might be terrifying right now, but begin. Just begin because it does get easier. And so whatever God's calling you to do, He has promised. He has a promise that corresponds to it. Take Him up on His promises. Now, lastly, all of God's promises are future-oriented. Have you noticed that? My love will sustain you. I'll provide for what you need. I'll transform you, and I'm coming back. Like Those are future-oriented promises. So right here, right now, today, we need something that we can actually look back to. That we can draw confidence from that's already happened so we can begin to move forward in faith. And interestingly, in this story about faith, John tells us that this miracle, that this, this son's uh, uh, his fever leaves him, they say, your son lives. He says it is a sign. Look at verse 54. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judah, Judea to Galilee. So a sign, John, John's gospel uses that word specifically, it's unique to John's gospel. A sign does what? It points to a further destination. So this miracle, this change of events, it points to a reality beyond itself. And what is it? What are you supposed to see here? What's the sign pointing us to? And the signs in the book of John always point us to the salvation event that, that occurs on the cross. This sign, this, this child... Uh, uh, Being restored and living points us to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That's what signs do. They point us to Jesus' death and resurrection. So the question is, why does John want to point us to Jesus' death and resurrection during a story that teaches us about trusting God? What does Jesus' death and resurrection have to do with faith? Here's why. Because Jesus' death is proof that God really loves us you have something to look back on to remind your heart that God really actually cares for you and loves you. So whatever he's asking you to do, it's not because he's cruel. It's not because he's toying with you. And and it's not because he's mean-spirited. And whatever happens after you take that step of faith, how if it doesn't work out the way you hoped, if it it, uh, disappoints you to any degree, you also still know that that certainly can't be because God doesn't love you. It might actually be because He actually loves you. The cross reminds us that God eternally loves us. He has placed His love on you. And so whatever He's asking you to do, however things go, it can't be because He has ill intentions behind it. It can only be because He has good intentions, good motivations behind it. Romans 5 says, for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is this memorial to God's everlasting love for you. You can walk forward and trust him no matter how you feel or no matter what happens. Because you know God loves you and always will love you. Everything that's going to happen is because God loves you. That's what the cross reminds us of. Draw your confidence from that. But also, the sign points us to what? The Son lives! Jesus' resurrection. What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with our faith? The resurrection is proof that it'll all be worth it. Like I've said many times before already, we are not guaranteed to get what we want there is no carrot at the end of the string. I don't know how it's going to go if you say yes to Jesus and commit to him and trust him. I don't know. We're only given his promises, but because Jesus has already died and resurrected, because he is the firstborn from the dead, there's there's this pattern that he has initiated that promises us just as he went, so you will go. Just as Jesus was resurrected, you will be resurrected. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Let this wash over you. This is his promise. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Everything you miss out on today and tomorrow, and from here on out, will be restored to you a hundredfold. Everything you give up because you've decided to trust Jesus, no matter how you feel and no matter the outcome, will be returned to you a hundredfold. Guys, <laughs> we will miss out on nothing. And so truly, when you think about it, our life is what? A drop in a bucket, you know, a, a good, long life is 90 years. We have 90 years of trusting Jesus of pouring our lives out, of saying yes to Him no matter what, no matter what the cost is, for what? Immortal life, endless days with Him in His presence where everything that we've ever said goodbye to for the sake of His name is given to us. And we know that's true because Jesus has died and Jesus has been raised. And so why do we walk forward in confidence, trusting His word of promise? that it's going to be okay, we look back to the cross. We look back to the empty grave to know that it'll be okay and it will all be worth it. So truly, I end, I end asking you this. What's he, what's he calling you to do? You've, you've likely felt something on your heart for a long time that you've suppressed and said, I don't want to do that. No, 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 it's cost too much. Trust him take up his promise and draw your confidence from his death and from his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. (laughs) Increase our faith, Lord, to obey you. God, I pray that we would withhold nothing from you and that we would not hesitate to obey you now. We recall your promises and we we recall the cross as the power to move forward. So Lord, we know that you're with us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are returning again. Be with us, God, as we obey you. In your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.